To drink or not to drink? That is the question. And it's one that we see in the news all the time. Red wine's healthy for you. Any amount of alcohol will kill you. Well, which is it? Hello and welcome to the Harvard Data Science Review podcast. I'm Liberty Vittert, feature editor of the Harvard Data Science Review, and I'm joined by my co-host and editor-in-chief, Shaoli May. With the news buzzing with brand spanking new studies on the effects of alcohol on our health, we decided to dive into our burning questions this month with Eric Rim, professor of epidemiology and nutrition and director of the program in cardiovascular epidemiology at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, who has been vocal in the media that some amount of alcohol is actually okay for you. And Emanuela Gakido, professor of health metric sciences at the University of Washington. Washington, and the lead author on a recent paper saying that no amount of alcohol is good for younger people. Can some level of alcohol be safe to drink? And please, please, please be gentle because I'm going to need to have a drink later. <laughs> You're already leading the conversation, you know, that's not allowed, okay? It's not data <laughs> I'm science. not allowed. I'm not allowed. Sorry, I'm leading it. I take it back. Emanuela, you want to go first? Sure. So my answer to your a very leading question. You're going to be happy with it. <laughs> so I would say it depends on how old you are and what your background probability of having different conditions are. But for the most part, if you're over the age of 40, having a drink a day as you get older, maybe two drinks a day is actually beneficial for your health based on what we know now. And in my opinion. Given that I'm under 40, thankfully, at the moment. Um, what are the recommendations there? Wait a few years so you can enjoy it when you're over 40. <laughs> oh, I'm obviously happy to hear that. And there's sometimes seems there's a benefit of aging. Shali so, always you. gets the benefits. This isn't fair. I, I will be a little more lenient on that. I do think that it's helpful and useful for people to learn healthy drinking habits. And so I think you know, one to two drinks a day is probably healthy for adults of any age, as long as they don't go beyond that. Eric, I'm taking your advice. I'm being a pick and choose. Sorry. Well, I, I specifically said it because I knew that if I said you under you women under 40 can't drink, that this would end the conversation very quickly. <laughs> I don't necessarily disagree with Eric, but I think that you know, the risks under 40 mainly have to do with risky behaviors and accidents and injuries. So, I mean, if we could take young people and make sure they wouldn't engage in anything that would cause harm to themselves or others through accidents, we would remove most of the harm from alcohol under the age of 40. So if you tell me you're just gonna drink at home, then I would probably say, okay. <laughs> Why don't we get rid of, rid of guns and cigarettes before we get rid of alcohol for injury for people under 40? <laughs> I'm just saying, it's an easier, yeah, I, it's an easier target. Well, yeah. Erica, you, you just give us another two topics for another two episodes, and each one of them will be increasingly, let's say, interesting. Um, but uh, taking it very seriously, right, because no matter what we recommend, we are more or less making a causal statement, right? Because, you know, we're saying, if you do this, it's better for you. If you don't, there might be consequences. Being a data science podcast, we trying to really get to the bottom of how do we reach these conclusions based on the best knowledge, you know, best studies, you know, we have so far. 
And uh, I think that the one difficulty, as you all know, you, you do these studies, is anytime studying human behaviors is very difficult. Uh, the data quality is, is always a problem. It's mostly self-reported. And in fact, I want to just sort of ask Erica, for example, very specifically, we talk about you know alcohol, but there's all kinds of different alcohols, right? Drinking a glass of beer is very different than drinking a glass of Maltai. You know, I grew up in China, and also the quality of the alcohols are you know incredibly important. There's a very low quality alcohols people made just for having some drinks. It could damage your house a lot. So the question I have: How do these studies you know take into account these issues, different type of alcohols? Uh, the quality issues, and more broadly, all kinds of confounding issues. Age is another one. As uh, Emmanuel, you mentioned age. You know, I was, was slightly worried about the reporting behavior may be very different for people with you know different age groups. Socioeconomic status is very different. So how do these studies well deal with these issues so we can reasonably confident that what we, we're looking at is not some other serious confounding factor? So I have a three-hour answer to that if you have yes. time. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, that, that is the key question to this, that there's you know, been literally 150 studies from countries across the globe that have looked at adults who drink and say that those who drink moderately have substantially lower rates of heart disease, usually about 35% to 40% lower rates of heart disease if you drink one to two drinks a day. Of course, drinkers are different than non-drinkers. So how do you tease out those facts? And the one way to do it is start experimentally to say, if I do it for three months and randomize people to alcohol or not alcohol, is there something that biologically changes when I give people alcohol? Because it's a trial. And so you would get people that are crossing over and you're testing them against themselves. And there is proven benefit from giving people alcohol for even three or four months in a randomized trial. So biologically, we know it does something. So that helps support the observational studies. So, and then what you can do is obviously, as a data scientist, you know, you can try to statistically account for as many of those things as you think you can measure. You can account for obvious things like smoking and diet and physical activity. Or you can even look at, you know, red wine versus beer versus spirits to see if there's a difference there. So, some of those things you can statistically adjust for. And you do see it moves the needle a little bit, but it doesn't move it that much. And you still see in almost every study that has looked at it that alcohol in moderation lowers heart disease rates and stroke rates, and that's what most people die of in developed countries. And then after that, you know, the sort of things that we have done when you really have a large data set and you have really well-collected data is you can start teasing some of those things out. Like, well, let's get rid of the sick people and let's get rid of people that smoke and let's get rid of and just look at the population that already looks incredibly healthy and look at the drinkers versus the light drinkers versus the non-drinkers. And even in incredibly healthy populations that have much lower rates of heart disease, drinkers have even much lower rates of heart disease than light drinkers or non-drinkers. And the final thing that we can do with observational studies is follow people over time. And that's the problem with a lot of data science that takes like a snapshot and looks at, you know, here's something now and here's something 20 years from now and what happened. But if you have a large population and you continue to measure their alcohol over time, people change their alcohol over time. Some people drink a little less as they get older. It doesn't make them feel unsteady. Some people drink a little bit more because they have, they have a stressful job and they start drinking more. Some people, you know, whatever, change their spouse and start drinking or stop drinking. And in those studies, what you see is that people who drink a little bit more have a little less heart disease and a little less diabetes. And people who drink a little bit less 
have a little bit more heart disease and a little bit more diabetes. So you start putting those things together and it does start to paint a picture that people who drink in moderation, it's, you know, it's less likely these other confounders and more likely the biology of what alcohol does to your liver and how that helps you when you drink in moderation and how it's really detrimental to you if you drink too much. I like that the takeaway that I took from this is that I need to pick my spouse based upon the fact that they drink moderately. I like that, I like that you choose your spouse based upon that. You choose, choose your friends. I mean, I mean, you can talk about Asian cultures where it's business. You have to go out and you have to pound alcohol. You know, in Korean populations, it's you know great stereotype of these are the people I work with. I have to drink seven drinks tonight because this is what they're doing. And so in some ways, it is the culture around you that makes people sometimes choose alcohol or not. And, you know, it could be your spouse, but it also could be your work environment or your religion or other things that drive you to drink less or drink more. So, Emanuela, I have to ask then, because your paper says that drinking under the age of 40 is not healthy. So how do you address the problem of self-reporting in that? You know, could it be that that age cutoff of 40 has to do with reporting differences? Or is it to do with the fact that there's just a bunch more car accidents for people who are under the age of 40? And so it's not actually the alcohol that's making you unhealthy, but it's the car accidents that's killing you. You know, what, what is creating that sort of a big difference in the study that you all have done that alcohol is not good for you under the age of 40 compared to sort of all the studies that Eric is talking about? Yeah, happy to go into that. And I'll just start by saying that I agree with everything that Eric said. So our studies are 100% consistent. And there's nothing magic about the age of 40 either. It's been portrayed in the media. But what we have done is looked across the life course. And so as people go through their 20s, 30s, 40s, and then 60s, 70s, their relative risk of being exposed to different health outcomes changes. And so what we have done is we've looked at the relationship between alcohol and 23 different diseases, things that can kill you and make you sick. So when you're younger, the things that you're most likely to die from are related to injuries and violent crime. So there's a lot of homicide, there's self-harm, there's a lot of road traffic injuries. And for all those causes, alcohol is harmful. There's no benefit to drinking and then any of these diseases. Then as you go into your 40s to 60s, we see an increase of cancers a little bit. So the relationship between alcohol and all cancers that we have explored to the best of our knowledge right now is harmful. So having alcohol increases your risk of cancer. And then as you shift to the age group where the, your predominant causes of death have to do with ischemic heart disease, stroke, and diabetes, that's where the protective effect kicks in because at small levels of consumption, the studies, like Eric was saying, are showing that there is a protective effect for ischemic heart disease, for diabetes, and for stroke. So we have tried to look at it from the perspective of population health, not individual health. And so if you're looking at an entire population and you want to maximize health or minimize health loss due to alcohol, then the best for your population would be for younger people to not drink and for middle-aged people to drink in moderation. And then as people get older, having some alcohol every day is actually good. And it really depends on the balance between the risk of cancer and the risk of cardiovascular outcomes, where that 
age threshold is, and that varies around the world. Can I add two cents to that? Because I think this is where we do have, I mean, we so far we've agreed on everything. I agree completely, but I think this point is the one where there are some differences in our interpretation of the world's data. And the reason why there's differences is if everybody just lived the world that Emanuela just described, and let's say we could control drinking and you got to age 40 and said, okay, you can have a little bit, you got to age 65, you can have more. The heart disease that everybody has documented, which is less in a 65-year-old, it's because they've been drinking their whole life. Heart disease does not develop when you're 65. It takes 30 years to develop. And I think that you potentially would not see the same benefit unless someone had been drinking moderately since their 20s or 30s or whatever. So I think it's really hard to study chronic disease because cancer doesn't happen overnight. And heart disease, we know biologically, takes 20 or 30 years to develop. I completely get your point. But on the other hand, is there another consideration here? Because people drink over 40 means they lived up to 40. You know, there, there's, uh, there's a survive yeah. bias here. How does that take into account? Because, you know, you might be younger, there's a lot more things. But if you, you know, you survive this long and you probably have better health. So how does that be part of the picture in, in this age differences here? Yeah, I mean, you know, injury and accidents are the number one cause of death in people under 40. But the numbers are pretty small compared to how many people die of heart attacks and strokes. So the absolute numbers are smaller. I think the biggest challenge with alcohol, it's not like an apple and it's not like red meat and it's not like a statin. You actually can binge on alcohol. And just by having four drinks on Friday night, you can get into an accident. Yet on average, you had a half a drink a day. It's just that you had them all on Friday night and got behind a wheel. So it's, you know, you don't have four apples just on Friday night. You don't binge on red meat. and You don't take all your statins on Friday night to reduce heart disease. But alcohol is just a hard thing to measure. Interesting. And most of the huge global studies completely ignore pattern. And Emmanuel has this as a couple of sentences in their paper, but you almost have to ignore pattern because it's hard to measure. In every country, how people drink is differently, which makes data science almost next to impossible to do for this because drinking patterns are different. If you look at beer drinkers in Germany and wine drinkers in France and spirits drinkers in, in Asian countries or Finland, it's just different how people drink. And we're, we're trying to make it into a data science field by saying, okay, let's just average it out and say, what do people have on average? It's, you know, half a drink a day. No one has a half a drink a day every day. That's just impossible. People don't drink that way. It's a really great point. I mean, that itself could be another four hours conversation in terms exactly of like like the you know the data science itself is 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 you can study you know country by country different type. You can go to hierarchical models, much more you know nuanced. But but I think the, the the big question then is that in order to do that, you first need to have a good data to be much more detailed. And uh, I also think that you know as I mentioned in the beginning. I guess when you all talk about alcohol, you're probably talking about like there's a strong alcohol, right? Can people measure into the alcohol percentage? Because, you know, drinking wine and drinking Chinese malta is a very different story. Yeah, well, it's potent, but on average, a drink will have about the same amount of alcohol. I mean, that's what the USDA looks at, as you know, a 12-ounce can of beer has about the same amount of alcohol as a four-ounce glass of wine, has about the same amount of alcohol as a shot of spirits, but you're right. Oh, Even within wine, you can have a 9% alcohol Riesling or you can have a 16.5% alcohol Zinfandel. So there's, you know, they have to say on average somewhere. So that even adds more error to your point is that 
you know, you take a spirit, you can be 50% alcohol or it can be you know, 25% alcohol and we just call it spirits. So it is challenging, which is makes it even harder to look at it in a, in a questionnaire where you're just asking someone, you know, how many glasses of wine do you have? You don't go into, oh, by the way, what do you usually drink? And what is your, I mean, people do ask about drinking pattern, but they don't ask about grape, you know, and then I'll ask about what part of the world is it from? And so it's, it, there is a fair bit of error in that aspect of it, of mm-hmm. um, trying to measure alcohol intake. Especially when Shali pours the glass, then it's, you know, double what the usual <laughs> pour is and it's two glasses <laughs> of drink. I like hanging out with you data science people. This sounds good. <laughs> oh yeah. That's how, you see, that's how we solve all, solve all the real problems, you know? <laughs> yeah. It actually, I made a joke about it, but actually, you know, there should be more projects where Emanuela works with me and I work with Emanuela. So I know her, I, you know, I, I read through her Lancet paper and the methods are, you know, at the cutting edge of methods that I understand. But I think it's also good for data science people to work with people who, you know, have done a lot of biology around alcohol metabolism. So we know the field really well because there's just challenges that you know, the more, more multidisciplinary the field, the better to truly understand the data science interpretation. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, I've been thinking about uh, the one thing about data science and wine, particularly wine, is just because of variety, because of variations, right? Anything with so many confounding factor variations, it's it's a perfect uh, project for data scientists. It's incredibly challenging, but it's also intellectually much more, you know, interesting. Yeah. So we also really want to talk about the general issue of how to pre- how do you present your your result for topics of this nature is no matter how you present carefully present you know the media the public will be taking one way or the other and how do we ensure this kind of uh, results being presented in a way that is not overly misleading because all your papers have a very careful you know section in the end about all the limitations but as you also know well these things will be completely ignored most of the time by the time you know gets to public media, what would you do here, as a you know as a scientist, as a scholar, as a data scientist, trying to make things as accurate as possible in terms of being communicated? Good luck with that, Manuela. <laughs> <laughs> you go, you go first. <laughs> I think I you have, have demonstrated tables. that no matter what I do, the media will take the headline they want. So uh, we're in a similar. like the precursor to the current study four years ago where we were trying to emphasize like three million people a year die from alcohol and where the burden is concentrated because there's some parts of the world where it's a big problem despite the benefits that other age groups and parts of the world may reap and the only thing that the media were reporting is no amount of drinking is safe for you and so this time we had a more nuanced message and we were pretty confident that we had communicated in a way that was going to be less misinterpreted. And the only headline I have really seen is that people under 40 should not drink, which was not really the point of the study. <laughs> um, so I guess I'm open to suggestions as to how to communicate this more effectively. And it is a very complicated topic. And I don't think the public health community, and I'm including myself in that, have done the world a ton of favor because messages evolve over time. But every time a message is presented, it's kind of presented as if it's the definitive word on that topic. And so I think we can do a better job of communicating that evidence evolves and the more we know, we will update our recommendations and make some of our statements a little bit less 
definitively like, you know, for red meat or fat or eggs or sugar, you know, all these messages have over the last like two, three decades have evolved over time and changed. And I think that doesn't help communicate newer messages. Well, Eric, you, you got off the hook really easily by fobbing that one off to Emanuela. So I'm going to put you squarely back on the spot. And I, you know, I looked up this, this statement and it, it said, and if I'm going to quote it correctly, it said you were hesitant to agree with the statement that studies have shown that one or two alcohol servings daily could reduce one's risk of a heart event nearly the same as losing about 30 pounds from dieting or physical activity. And you said you were hesitant because weight loss is more beneficial for other health reasons, you know, reducing risk of cancer, so and so and so and so. But how else do you say it so that people understand? Like, why is that so bad to say something like that if it makes sense to people and it gets across the point of whatever the public health measure is? Yeah, I, I think Emanuela's point was exactly right. You, you can't summarize the complexities of alcohol with a single sentence or a single headline. But that's the only way the media works is that there is someone's going to write the headline. The story can be, story can be nuanced if anybody ever reads a story or if they just look at the headline saying everybody under 40 should drink. So, I mean, I, I remember saying that at the time and I think, you know, some of it was, I was comparing relative risks just on a quantitative sense, you know, the weight loss and drinking alcohol would give you the same benefit for heart disease. But, you know, the challenge is there's very few people who start out when they're 21 and drink a drink a day or two drinks a day and don't ever change over the course of their lifetime. So some of it is just the messaging of there, there are people, you know, if, if eight to 10% of the population in the United States, you know, is abuses alcohol, they didn't all start out abusing alcohol. They started out probably drinking one or two drinks a day and they got to drinking too much. So if I could tell you, if I had a magic wand and I could tell you who's going to go on to abuse alcohol, then that would be a much easier message to give to say, oh yeah, everybody should have a drink a day. But that's, we just don't know that. And sometimes they have a drink a day and they still get behind the wheel and drive and are a little bit impaired and get into a car accident. So it's it's just a really hard message to communicate. And I will tell you that my PhD thesis was on this three decades ago when I was 28 years old. And you know we published a paper in Lancet and we showed very clearly that if you get rid of all the sick people from your study, you drink moderately and it lowers rates of heart disease. I mean, people came out of the woodwork and that was like one of the first well done observational studies. And you had the media who would jump on this bandwagon and you had the anti-drinkers who jumped on this and you i had the industry calling me you know willing to support my research so the alcohol field itself is so conflicted because of people's personal biases i mean we were joking here about i'm gonna have a drink after work clearly i now know that you're a drinker exactly you know i have this bias of course but there are people who had a father who had a drinking problem or for religious reasons don't drink and they don't care what Emanuela and I say, they're not going to start drinking. Of course. And so, like, who who is the message going to? If you like to drink, then you probably already do drink because alcohol is relatively cheap and readily available. So the question is, who should we be telling not to drink because they're abusing alcohol or drinking too much? So some of it is like it's already out there. And so it's it is really an incredibly hard message to give because people use it in bad ways and you can, you know, reduce heart disease if you do it for 30 years, or you can kill yourself tomorrow if you drink too much and get behind the wheel. So it's just, it's not, it can't be a single headline. I then have the question of, you can say that it's not, it can't be a single headline, 
but it's going to be a single, a single headline, right? Like it's <laughs> going to be a single an headline. It's so, a headline. I, I mean, Emmanuel, your article came out and I went on the news and talked about it. And, you know, they give you a two and a half minute soundbite. So that's a little bit longer, but it's still a soundbite. And what most people read is the headline. And, you know, I read, and this might be just the way the media spun what you say, but it was that men under 40 shouldn't have more than a shot of beer a day, which is completely unrealistic, right? Who's going to have a shot of beer? I mean, that, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. So, uh, you know, given the fact that people are going to read it in a headline, we need to give them realistic advice. And I imagine we have some sort of responsibility to give people realistic advice. What do you do? Like, where's the line of realistic advice versus unrealistic advice? I mean, I'm going to push back on that a bit and say that, like, I don't see my job as giving realistic advice. I see my job as interpreting the data the way that maximizes health, right? Like, that's my job. We've been telling people for seven decades not to smoke. There is no doubt whatsoever that smoking is bad for you. And a lot of young people smoke. So we have to tell people what's best for them. Now, in terms of how people interpret it, if people under 40 hear that drinking is bad for you, maybe they will think twice about how much they drink and maybe they will moderate their consumption. And that will be a win because like Eric was saying, if on a Friday night, instead of having four drinks, you have one or two, that will still reduce the number of alcohol related deaths. Or if policymakers see it and shift the guidelines, you know, there are some really aggressive anti-drunk driving interventions in Australia where their tolerance was set to zero. And there was a huge benefit from reductions in road traffic related deaths. So that was an intervention that didn't necessarily affect how much people were drinking, but it interfered with the consequences of young people drinking. Or there's another example in the town of Cali in Colombia, the mayor looked at the pattern of homicides and every second Friday, which was a payday, the rate of homicides would go up in the evening. And so he shut down the bars early on paydays on Fridays and that reduced the homicide rate. So, you know, there's a lot that people can do with that information that we're giving them that is actionable. It's not necessarily up to the individual to change their behavior and say, I'm never going to drink again. But there is a lot of policy interventions that if this message gets out, we can, as a community, as a country, as a nation, we can do a lot of things to reduce the harm associated with alcohol. So I don't think the goal of the study is necessarily to change an individual's behavior all the time. But I do believe that having the latest evidence available to you is something that people should have. And so I think it's important to communicate the latest evidence. People will interpret it in different ways. And then society and policymakers have the responsibility to act on that evidence and see how they can maximize the health of their populations. So I think that actually really uh, is a really important and interesting point. I somehow get lost in these uh, you know media titles because when it, when somebody quotes you say below forty you know don't drink, it's not necessarily point to the problem of you know drinking and driving, right? That's a problem everybody will understand, and that is really a societal policy issue. But the question then from your study, if we take away that part, do we still see some? damage to your health, or it's really more you know, drinking driving issues. After you separate that, is there some health issues as well? From my experience, and Eric can also chime in from his experience, if you take away the injury-related deaths, the road traffic accidents, homicides, self-harm, 
that's the vast majority of harm associated with drinking at young ages. Eric mentioned uh, previously that alcohol use disorder is something to avoid and associated with heavy episodic drinking. So we do see some of that in younger ages, but the majority of the harm comes from um, road traffic accidents, homicide, and self-harm. Yeah, you know, as I said before, a lot of bad things in the future start when you abuse alcohol when you're young. So even though you may just sit in your dorm room and abuse alcohol, if you're starting to abuse alcohol at a young age and you continue to do it for you know decades, you're going to die of cirrhosis and things like that when you're 50. But I think even we have to look more closely beyond just sort of mortality and death. There is a lots of injury. People end up in the emergency room because they, they fall down drunk and break a leg. So it's not death, but it's, there's a, a cost to society. And I think the one that's most troubling is probably mental health or spousal abuse. There's unfortunately, you know, no one dies, but there's trauma forever from people, you know, being with a spouse, one or the, one or the other drinking too much and end up beating each other. So, and that doesn't cause death, but that causes trauma forever. And it's usually, you know, again, it's episodic drinking. It's not the person that has a half a drink or a drink and a half. It's someone that on Friday night had a tough week, drank four drinks, went home and, you know, beat their spouse, whatever. So there is a cost to society to that, that I'm not sure any policy would change. I think it's really about helping people understand a healthy way to drink versus an unhealthy way to drink. So I think this wraps up sort of a wonderful conversation to me on, on alcohol and learning a little bit more about about all, all different aspects of health, and I'm, I'm now going to have to rethink what, how many drinks I'm going to have tonight. But um, it brings me to this magic wand question of, if realistically we assume that people are going to drink, if you could wave your magic wand, both of you, and I'll start with you, Emanuela, if you could wave your magic wand, what should they drink, how much should they drink, and when should they drink it? If I could wave my magic wand, I would like to see nobody consuming excessive amounts of alcohol ever. So those that enjoy drinking, if they have one drink, two drinks a day, and they never go to excessive amount, I think ultimately it will be the best intervention. So, you know, everything in moderation, particularly alcohol, would be my magic wand intervention. Eric, what are your thoughts? Um, yeah, I, I think there's so much to be said for pattern of consumption that if I can wave my magic wand, it would be similar. I think I would tell people to always stop at two and sometimes at one. It's not for everybody. I think what we have to remember that there's a lot of other things that you can do that are healthy. So if you're drinking alcohol because you think it's health thing, it's probably should be more of a lifestyle choice as opposed to I'm doing this just to be healthy. I mean, exercise and healthy diet, there's a lot of other things we can do to be healthy. But I do think that pattern is so important that I would tell people not to drink every day. I think if you are the type of person, even if you drink one or two drinks a day and you drink every day, that's usually what gets people to drinking too much and having problems and probably not reporting and actually in a questionnaire. So I would say you know, drink one to two drinks a day in a setting where you're having it with a meal and maybe doing it three to five times a week. 
So Eric, I just have to follow up with one more question because I, I posted on our social media if, if there's any questions for this discussion. And this one came up about 10 times. Dry January. If you're not a problem drinker and if you're drinking in the way that you're you're discussing, or, or let's even say some more, is, is there a benefit to doing a month off of drinking? Is that a good idea or does that do anything or what, what should people be doing that? I think you can ask a lot of data scientists or scientists who are biologists to speculate on that. It will be speculation. There is not a hell of a lot of data on dry January in terms of biology. I mean, actually, there's probably fewer car accidents if you've got a lot of people doing it because there wouldn't be 22-year-olds, you know, killing themselves in cars because they wouldn't be drinking in January. But I mean, what I can say from what I have seen is it makes people aware of what they feel like when they don't drink. Um, And some people, it may lead them down a path of, oh, I guess I was drinking too much before. What I don't want it to do is create something that's like, oh, I've created this void in my life and I can't go on. I can't wait for February to come so I can get back into the swing of drinking. It's like a lot of what we talked about. It's really a behavioral thing more than the alcohol itself. It's, you know, it's truly a, a pattern. And, and so I, I, if it works for you and you want to do it every January and it kind of resets you and so that you're not drinking too much and reminds you of, gee, I shouldn't feel hungover on Saturdays and Sundays because I didn't drink, then that's great. But I, unfortunately, there's not a lot of great science suggesting, oh, dry January is the way to go. I think you'll have a lot of happy listeners on that one. Well, I, again, go back to the magic wand. One to two drinks, three to five days, and stop there. <laughs> I like it. Thank you to both of you for that intoxicating conversation. <laughs> oh, he's been waiting on that one. <laughs> well, I've been waiting for the whole time to, to deliver the line. I'm sure your listeners will be whining about this show for a while. <laughs> <laughs> but, but seriously, I think, uh, you know, I hope this episode uh, really informed the general public. First, study of this nature. Uh, just like any study of human behavior, is extremely complex. And uh, there's really no magic wand there, you know, regardless how many times we ask a magic wand. And in fact, from what you both uh, said, it reminds me, this is like the study to establish that smoking is bad for you. It's, it's a long process, right? In the 40-some years study, you know, uh, eventually we are now all convinced. Second, I think of both of you said really something which is, which is really profound. We all understand that, but we, we may not. We don't practice that well in our own daily life. Is everything should be uh, consumed by a, a moderate amount. It's easy to say, it's hard to do. And that's why we hope this episode can help. But after all, I think after this episode, we do all deserve to have a little bit of drink, whether it's uh, <laughs> one small amount. See, it's not just class. me, Eric. It's, it's Shelly too. It's, it's that he's the bad influence. I have a fair bit of this in my office. <laughs> our listeners, Eric is showing us his, his alcohol collection in his office. <laughs> People give me gifts and it does. It stays here unopened. <laughs> Invite us. We can uh, we can consume your gifts. You take care of it for me. Thank you. But thank you both again. This has been fascinating. I really really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. The United States has a silent crisis. People are dying every day from opioid overdoses. Americans are victims of misaligned, biased systems that keep them from accessing the financial services that make home ownership possible. Trust in our election processes is at an all-time low because misinformation and disinformation is rampant online. These are big problems, and there are a lot of opinions and ideas about how to solve them. 
Sometimes the solutions offered by the business community are consistent with academic research, but other times, not so much. I'm Liberty Vittert, professor of the practice of data science at Washington University in St. Louis and feature editor of the Harvard Data Science Review. And I'm Scott Tranter, co-founder and data science director at Decision Desk HQ and past co-founder and CEO of Optimus Analytics. And this is Data Nation. In each episode of Data Nation, Scott and I will look at a challenge facing our society today. We'll dig into the data, get to the facts, and with the help of top scholars and industry experts, we'll try to figure out the best ways to overcome the challenges to solve America's biggest problems. We'll investigate racial profiling and policing and examine the methods that failed to stop it with former NYPD police officer and Burlington, Vermont Chief of Police Brandon Del Pozo. You don't want to tell cops that they can never use the physical description of a person to know who to stop and who not to stop, right? Because knowing who to stop is also knowing who not to stop. We'll examine the dangerous side of the data economy to find out if our data is really safe and private with New York Times columnist Kevin Roos. Just having good intentions doesn't matter if you're building some, you know, surveillance dragnet that's going to be used to arrest and prosecute women seeking abortions. And we'll consider the damage done by rampant political misinformation with Facebook's former director of public policy, Katie Harbeth. I don't believe that if you were to shut down Facebook tomorrow, that this problem goes away. I think it continues. Along with these industry experts, we'll also hear from MIT researchers and professors like Craig Watkins, Annette Pico-Hasoy, and Andrew Lowe. Data Nation is a production of the MIT Institute for Data Systems and Society and Vox Topica. The show launches on September 8th, but you can subscribe to Data Nation now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. 